Musician and early jazz scholar Vince Giordano fell in love with 20s and 30s jazz at an early age and carries on this tradition performing with his band The Nighthawks. Today we revisit my 2005 conversation with Vince, where he spoke with me about bringing this music to a broader audience and especially the importance of young people hearing jazz live. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I asked Vince what drew him to early jazz more than other styles. So here I am at my grandmother's phonograph, winding it up and listening to these early jazz recordings and and personalities of that time, and I'm hearing this energy and this vitality and this intensity that I'm not hearing in my young years of listening to pop AM radio. <laughs> so this was just something that was completely of another of another world and it grabbed me and I said this is my music. to just the radio were they playing records as well just the radio and they would you know wander by because I'd be in this corner by myself and they said why don't you play something from the 20th century you know they came up at the later swing era and I'm just going back to my grandparents recordings of the 20s you know they crudely recorded things and uh, they couldn't understand Whiteman's 1928 recording of When. I talk to anyone who's into this music in any way, wherever they tap into it, 
it's because they were exposed to it and it immediately connected. And it proves the point that if it were out there, people would love it. But it just isn't. It isn't easily accessible. Correct. And, and I think parents are not showing children everything that's on the buffet table. As mm. I, you know, the kids are just going into one part of the table, what I, what I say. I look as music as food. Just, it's out there. Just try it. Listen to this. Listen to that. You might like it. And you might learn a lot. But it's not happening. That's interesting. What was the first tune, if there is something specifically, that you can remember that you really keyed in on? Was it a specific tune, a specific artist? Um, well, there were a couple items. I mean, I brought one of them today, this, this King Oliver recording called Every Tub. And there's one section on there that is just so haunting. I mean, the way the players play their notes, uh, Barney Begard and, uh, and Omer Simeon go back and forth between a soprano and a, and a clarinet, and it's just so, wow, what is going on here? It, that, that really caught me, and, mm. and that really grabbed me. every day they would play the Little Rascals and Laurel and Hardy uh, shorts and there was always this peppy infectious music and that was sort of my theme song which has become my theme song in my band which I also brought in as example it's it's kind of very crude sounding because it's off old uh, soundtrack but these things really got me through the low points of my life and made me like springboard into continuing this this quest to play this old music today in my lifetime Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is musician and band leader Vince Giordano. I talked with Vince about his love for early movie music. 
the music in older cartoons, in older movies, it was of such a high quality and so sophisticated. And I think it, it went into the subconscious of people who got to grow up with that and made them better listeners. That's my opinion, because I know I certainly listened to those things and it inspired me. Well, you know, when those early cartoons and short subjects and films were being produced in the late 20s, early 30s, of course, the music of the time was, a lot of it was jazz music, and that was the popular music of, of the day, along with pop standards and novelties. So naturally, the big companies are going to get the best musicians that they possibly could get, and, and fortunately, those things were recorded, and fortunately, a lot of them do survive, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you play some of this Little Rascals music, and a lot of people who were around my age, around 50s, baby boomers, as we call ourselves, or people call us, they say, oh, yeah, that's that Little Rascals music. Or a lot of times when people hear my music, you know, my, oh, that's that old cartoon music. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's, they don't play those cartoons, or the Little Rascals, or Laurel and Hardy on TV anymore, which is kind of a shame, but so be it. When did you start playing an instrument? I started in the third grade. Uh, they took a music aptitude test for all the kids, and I scored pretty good. And I didn't know this, but the next year they were they did the same test, and they offered wind instruments. I didn't know that, but it was string instruments, and I wound up with a violin and a very bad teacher. Oh. And it was very it was very hard. I just had an awful time with this teacher. She wound up making majority of us cry, which is easy when you're in the third grade. I'd love to meet this teacher again. If you're out there, you did a bad job. <laughs> you did a bad thing. Exactly. <laughs> and we all quit. Uh, you know, the, the violin's hard enough to begin with. I mean, like, you know, give me a break. So I didn't do anything for about four or five years, which is kind of regretful. I walk into my band room in junior high, which is now a junior slash senior high. It was a, such a small community out in Long Island. Uh, and I said, look, I want to play the trumpet, the trombone, the clarinet, something like that. And the band director says, we have too many of those kids. What we really need is a tuba player because our tuba player is a senior. He's graduating next year. We have no one. So he brings me in this room. We clean on the mouthpiece. He says, try this. I make a sound. It's brah. He says, you sound great, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of baloney, but he's a good salesman. Uh... You know, and I was this big, fat kid. And he gives me a tuba. I take it home on the bus that day, and I forever became Tubby the Tuba. And, um, <laughs> this is so sad. Yeah, it really is. But there it is, and I got into it. And then one fateful day, I'm playing my old recordings, and I drag the tuba out, and I said, I want to play, because I hear a tuba on the old soundtrack. I mean, on the old uh, recording, rather. And uh, I pretty much have pretty good beat, but I wasn't, I wasn't knowledgeable enough to know about chord changes, and so... I said, wow, what's the possibility of playing this music today? And that was another important milestone in my life. And that, you know, just again furthered me on to, uh, to go out there and seek what I could do to uh, help my, my fantasy come true.
Giordano's Nighthawks from the soundtrack of The Aviator. It's so fantastic to hear you say this because I'm grinning from ear to ear relating with this because I had a terrible piano teacher. I didn't play for years and I've regretted not having good teachers. But listening to you and thinking about the kind of music that you play, I can say to you what people have said to me, well, had you had a teacher, they might have said, no, you don't get to do this kind of music, and taken us down the predictable path where neither of us wanted to go, which I always say to students when I'm teaching in classes, is find a music you adore that will make you want to play, mm -hmm. that will make you want to practice. And as I'm hearing you, it's very much that way because this was sort of serendipitous. They needed a tuba player, yeah. and you weren't listening to horn lines particularly when you were hearing these bands because it's fascinating to me what a person listens to what draws them in when you were listening to this music did you listen to the whole texture of it yeah and... I, I listened to all the individual solos and and the singers and all i mean i was involved with the whole thing but now that i'm stuck with this tuba you know <laughs> <laughs> i gotta say well where does this guy fit in on uh... these old recordings so so i naturally just kind of honed in and and grabbed that part of the of the performance. When did you start playing bass sax? Later, much later. Uh, the next step was uh, being in, in this junior high school. They didn't have a string department, but they had a string uh, teacher, and he said, he knew I was into the 1920s and 30s music, and he says, you know, back in the old days, the 20s and 30s, all the tuba players had a double on bass, and I said, they did? Again, another salesman, because he needed a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> but these people were positive, unlike the violin teachers, exactly. so this is great. Exactly. So I thank you, later teachers. So I started with the string bass. I started collecting more and more recordings, and I picked up a recording that uh, had a weird bass-sounding instrument on it. And at that time, you still had three-speed phonographs in, in the music room. And I brought the record in, and I played it for my band director, and I said well, what the heck is this bass instrument that's playing there? Is that like a, a, a bassoon? or a, He says, no, that's a bass saxophone. A bass saxophone, wow, what's that? So I had this big quest to try to find a bass saxophone, and I drove my parents nuts, driving me all over Long Island, <laughs> because folks thought that they had a bass sax, and a lot of times it was a tenor, and, you know, you get some, gee, it's awfully big, yeah, but it's a tenor, or nine <laughs> times out of ten it was a baritone, and finally I found one, and I bought one from an old guy. And that's how I got that. And I was, I'm pretty much self-taught on that. Uh, the uh, band director didn't want me to get involved with the saxophone because it would, he said, be a conflict with my tuba chops. Is it a conflict with your tuba chops? No, no. I, uh, I really abandoned the idea of being a, a serious classical tuba player. I, I thought about that at one point in my life, and I was taking lessons with a, 
a great uh, tubist uh, for the New York Philharmonic, uh, Joe Novotny. And I was way over my head. And uh, you just had to, you had to spend like 20 hours a day practicing the tuba. And uh, and then I wouldn't be playing my jazz music. You know, mm. I'd be just playing classical music, which is fine. I mean, I love classical music. It's great. But I think I got to the place where my, you know, where I, I feel better, you know. Playing. When did you decide you wanted to have your own band? Because that's a big undertaking. I remember, I have to say, you and I have been friends for a long time, and I remember when I first came to New York from L.A. and I was so anxious to have a band, you said you don't realize how lucky you are to be a soloist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. It's a huge undertaking. Well, uh, I guess my formative years in, in high school and stuff, I was gigging and stuff, and I was always a, a sideman and working in small little groups. And uh, at the end of high school... My grades weren't that good, and I, I really had to do something with my life because the Vietnam War was on. And I auditioned for the Navy show band, and I made it in. And they said, yes, but you got to get through high school because I, I really could care less about high school. I, my main thing was music, 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 and I was gigging at night and coming home late. And anything. Anyway, I got into the Navy show band, which was a wonderful opportunity for me because we toured just about all, all the countries in South America and, and, and the States, in a big 24-piece band. So I learned so much on what to do and what not to do. I learned about personalities of musicians, of gear, of hotel accommodations, of transportation, of all these little cogs in the wheel that make the big machine happen. I mean, I'm still learning a lot. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes still, but, you know, it's a never-ending process. Giordano's Nighthawks on Shake That Thing from the soundtrack of The Aviator. I don't think people realize that, especially when you're dealing with musicians, and I want to say especially jazz musicians, where you're hiring people because they have a personality that comes through their music and are very strong with wanting to express that personality, but they still have to give it up for the sound of the band. It's like herding cats. It's a really tough thing to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, 
And then having jazz musicians, uh, the entity himself, I mean, they, these guys are from another, and gals are from another planet. You got to draw them back in to say, look, we're, we're trying to get this as, as a unit, you know, with all of us working together and, uh, and certain aspects of discipline, and, uh, which is sometimes hard to convey, you know. You're also trying to have people play a very specific sound, which I think is fascinating, and I want you to speak to that because. A classical conductor certainly has his own sound, and he's looking at the notes, and each conductor would have an orchestra sound very different. If they were all playing the same piece, would still have his stamp. But you're trying to get people to do something that stylistically hasn't been the popular music for a long time. And maybe some of these people haven't even heard this music a lot. How does one convey that thought? You have to be very patient, and you have to be very diplomatic. Uh, I try to explain to folks that classical musicians have to be very versatile too, whether they're playing Mozart or they're playing Philip Glass. You know, there's different ways of in interpreting the music. And I believe it was James P. Johnson back in, I think, probably the late 30s predicted that jazz musicians of the future will have to be open to interpret different different styles of jazz. So it's not like I'm one of the few people thinking along these lines. I think what really people have to do if they really want to play in this style is to listen. The idea of playing this style of music uh, in today's uh, time, you have to approach it as almost like a, a different language. I mean, if you want to speak another language, which it, it is, you just can't read it out of a book or wish it so. You have to get with people of that ilk and learn how they pronounce the words and how they have the inflections and stuff as you know whether it's french or chinese or whatever i mean you really have to listen to that and one of the great things and also one of the bad things is that we have these recordings and i say that and i'll explain that when i'm what i'm trying to say is the way jelly roll morton played or frankie trombar or louis armstrong we have that fortunately on wax and we know what the band sounded like and we know their the intensity and the and the groove they got and it's great for me but it's also very frustrating to me when i try to do it and i'm not getting that you see we don't know what bach and brahms and mozart's ensemble sounded like and that's kind of a shame but but maybe it's a blessing in disguise we can interpret that music the way we want to and i don't have that luxury because i have this thing in the back of my head and oh my goodness this is not feeling right it's not sounding right so it's very hard too and I want you to try to explain this because people seem to have a vague notion of okay there was ragtime I'm talking about the great populace yes. and even a lot of musicians and then there was swing and then there was bebop and then there was everything else they forget that there was this period of time which you really specialize in which falls between ragtime and when swing music really got going. And it's a very different feel because I know I've tried to, I've come to many of your gigs mm -hmm. and I love to dance and tried to dance to that music. And it's not swing dancing. It's a very different feel. How would you describe it? And what years would you talk about sort of between that your band, the Nighthawks, we should say? Yeah. Uh, what years do they specialize in? Well, I mean, I'd say we, we go from probably 1919 to probably the 40s. I mean, mm -hmm. we do get into the swing era. And around circa 1919 and 1922, there was even a, a, a hybrid version of what Lenny Kunstad used to call ragged jazz, where there was one part 
of the of the feel of the music was sort of ragtimey, which is eights, a pa 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 pa, and yet the jazz was coming in. What a pa da do do dee do dee do dee. So you had this two feel thing happening, and I I think he he hit the nail on the head. It was ragged jazz, and eventually the ragtime feel kind of went away, and this kind of even two or four four rhythm came into the feeling of of the music. The earlier twenties, I would say that it it was more very syncopated two beat where it's one two one and two and one and two that kind of feel and this was really the the first feeling for, for jazz i mean i uh ragtime i'm you know i mean it people did improvise in 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 that respect but pretty much i i would think along just the written lines of of the, of the composers but when you're getting into the jazz early jazz days where people would just go out and take choruses you know built on the uh, the chords of the tune and or just syncopating around the melody, they would have more of a a, a two four 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 feel where it's leading up into the swing era. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was this whole big development. It's really hard to kind of express this by speaking about it. It's more easy to put on a record. And, it's and, great though you know, hearing you say it and yeah. actually do the rhythm. Yeah.
Jelly Roll Morton's 1938 recording of Scott Joplin's composition, Maple Leaf Rag. version of the Charlie Christian Swing Era Anthem Airmail Special. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. To learn more about our show, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. My guest, band leader Vince Giordano, talked about first hearing Benny Moten's band. When I was a young kid... My father's friend came over with a bunch of 10-inch LPs, and it was called the RCA Victor History of Jazz. And it had a lot of early jazz of the 20s and 30s, and uh, very rare things that I would, you know, probably not even be able to find on 78s and uh, these days. And, and one of the tunes on there was a Benny Moten track, and I said, wow, listen to this group. This was something else, and of course the information was very scant. I didn't know who really was I was I was listening to who were the sidemen. Benny Moten was a great um, pianist in in the Kansas City area who had a wonderful, successful band. His big hit in the early days was a tune called South. They really started uh, the whole Kansas City sound way before everyone else uh, really jumped on the bandwagon. And in the late twenties, things started to change. Uh, this, pianist comes into town uh he gets stranded he has no means of support he's got the clothes on his back the band that he came in with just kind of split the manager took his money and he uh goes to benny moton and says uh you know the the big orchestras in new york where i'm from you know east coast they all have two pianos and uh i think that would be a great versatility you know to show uh something here for the folks in kansas city and benny moton says wow that's a great idea and this young man who came up with this idea was the great Count Basie. So Count Basie gets into the band and adds so much to this sound that um, Benny Moten pretty much kind of phases his own piano playing out and a whole new sound 
evolves out of Kansas City. records were cut in 1932 and you play that for most musicians and they think you're playing something from 1942 mm -hmm. they were like a decade ahead of their time like i don't know how this all happened it was just magic mm. so interesting talking about listening to these early records because you and i know that so much of what we love the kind of music that we love we've had to listen to it on recordings that are less than pristine yes 
And while it'd be nice that they were pristine, we really don't care because we're listening to the notes. And I think that people can really lose something with not allowing themselves to hear some of these things and think, oh, it's just got a lot of noise or something like that. But you've brought a lot of things that we wouldn't even get to listen to if you didn't have the 78s. Yeah, this is true. And, you know, a lot of folks, uh, younger folks particularly, who are very high-tech and they want to hear music as it's supposed to sound today, they will get a little turned off by listening to this. And in our live performances, they will come up to us and say, wow, you know, I'm going to go listen to these old records again and forget about the lack of fidelity and the lack of scratch. In fact, when Leonard DiCaprio came up to us when we were doing this one scene at the in the film, he says, I never knew that this music had so much vitality and such, uh, you know, excitement in it. You know, he associated this old music as, you know, these old dark-sounding recordings and scratchy. And I said, yeah, it's it's all there. It's just that Unfortunately, they didn't have the technology that we have of today. Isn't that interesting? You're speaking, of course, of Leonardo DiCaprio because you were the musical director for different segments of The Aviator. Talk about that. And that's wonderful. I never thought about it. You're right. These younger people wouldn't know that this music is really alive if they only heard it on these recordings that are less than pristine very often with bad instruments. I always find it funny when I've heard musicians that imitate the old records, thinking they're going for the authentic sound, not realizing that they're imitating a bad instrument. Oh, yeah. And so they're thinking they're being authentic when it would be as if I tried to untune my piano or something. <laughs> but speak about The Aviator. That had to be a fun project. Or was it a fun project? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Making a movie is no piece of cake. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of each. Uh, it's, it's great to be asked and to be tapped, you know, to say, hey, uh, we need these tracks. We have to recreate these um, tracks for the film. Scorsese was very specific on what he wanted for the Coconut Grove scenes. Uh, the other hard part is that there's always never enough time. You know, they call you, and in two days you have to whip together all this sometimes and get all the musicians together and get all the things proofread and, and make sure everything is up to, uh, you know, specs. And that that part I don't I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy the... The hustle and bustle of of getting everything done. And it's so sad, too, as you're saying this, because I've had other people in the movie business tell me this, that you'll have people and all the details, you'll have directors like a Scorsese that's obsessive about details, and then the music comes in, and very often details go out the window. It's, oh, let's get a general sound. I'm not saying that that's what he did there, mm -hmm. but I've heard this before. It's very frustrating to musicians to, because you think, I have the same attitude about details and this being exactly right. Mm -hmm. It had to be hard for you. Did you use the same musicians to record the music that you used to play it in the movie? Were they the same people on screen that were on the on the soundtrack? Uh, we recorded it here in New York uh, and the Coconut Grove scenes were filmed in Canada and in Canada they used what we call sidelining musicians. They They didn't use our musicians. It would be too expensive to bring them up there. So they asked me to come up oh, about a half a dozen times. I, I did I did two scenes out of like about six. Uh, I was a, like a technical advisor advising these musicians to appear that they were playing and, and appear that they were having a good time and, and standing up and using their mutes and little body movements that are necessary to be theatrical and also to be natural. Uh, it was more of a cost-cutting thing.
I've got those happy feet. Give them a low down beat, and they begin dancing. I've got those ten little tapping toes, and when they hear it too, I can't control my dancing heels to save my soul. Weary blues can't get into my shoes because my shoes refuse to ever grow weary. I keep cheerful, heart and earful of music sweet. Giordano's Nighthawks on Happy Feet from the soundtrack of The Aviator. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Guest, band leader Vince Giordano, talked about jazz great Earl Hines. Earl Father Hines, he was just, just so great. When I listen to Father Hines play on his recordings, I, I'm sometimes sitting at the edge of my chair because he doesn't sound like he's going to make it. He's, <laughs> he sounds like, oh my God, oh my God, it's going to come crashing down miraculously. He'll take these breaks that come out of nowhere and boom, comes right in, is like a cat. You know, you, you know, falling out of a out of a tree, and boom, he just lands right on all fours and right ahead, and going on and on. He, to me, was the first modern piano player that that I can find. I mean, there might be people before that'll prove me wrong, but for me, he's the fella that really started playing in a more modern style in the 1920s. His bass runs that come out of nowhere. His way of playing his solos, which they call the trumpet style, he would just do these little solos and octaves with his with his with his um, thumb and, and pinky, and just bring out these great piercing solos. Also, sometimes on like on the Jimmy Noon recordings, he would roll these these little counter melodies, sort of as a an, almost like another instrument, like a, like a saxophone. And and I said, my goodness, I mean, nobody was doing this. He was all by himself and um, I'm sure he influenced a lot of musicians I know I listen to him and and I'm just knocked out every time I hear him I am too I'm so glad to hear you say this because I don't think he's focused on as much because I know when I heard those recordings I'd be listening and enjoying the whole thing and then he would come on and it was like where did that come from like he was from a whole other era and everybody else sounds dated Except him. Mm -hmm. I have recordings that I don't even particularly enjoy some of the other people. I just have it for the eight bars of Heinz. (laughs) And 
I don't hear people talk about him in the same way. I mean, piano players do, because any yeah. pianist who's listening to these things, they always just go, oh, my God. Yeah. But you don't hear about him in the same way that you hear, I mean, everyone says that Tatum did these things. Everyone says Basie. Why didn't Hines get the attention? Or did he? And I'm just naive to it. No, I, I think you're right. No, I mean, you're not naive at all. Um, it's just uh, the, everyone's place in history gets a little bit uh, convoluted and, uh, you know, the Basie and Art Tatum's, uh, I guess, had bigger breaks and, you know, they were in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. and so many more times. And, and Father Hines, you know, he just, you know, became a sideman for a while. He worked with Louis Armstrong and, you know, he had this little little career and I don't know, you know, he probably didn't have the right agent. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, it's, what, what it was. What was different about his orchestra? Not too much different than many other bands. Um, he pretty much had this the same 10-piece band that most bands had in the 1920s with a three brass and three saxes and four rhythm. Um, I think it's him that really makes it so much different than, than any other orchestra around. recording of the Earl Hines Orchestra on Everybody Loves My Baby. I know everyone calls you already and writes to you to help them with archival work, so I hate to bring this up and have you barraged even more, being the authority that you are with this music, but I have to talk about your archival work because you really are the man to go to for all of these things. I know you have a huge collection of music and you've worked you worked for a long time for RCA BMG for their archives. Talk about that. Was that a fun experience? Yeah, it really was. Um, I'm a workaholic. I love to work, whatever it is. And um, I started cataloging my 
holdings, oh, probably about 10 years ago when the computers started coming in. I, uh, originally I put everything on 3x5 cards. Um, I've amassed about 30,000 arrangements and 27,000 pieces of sheet music and about 10,000 pieces of um, silent picture movie cues. And when I heard about this job at BMG RCA, I went over with my computer and I said, look, I'm an archivist and I'd love to do this for you. And they said, sure. So I went to work every day, 10 to 6, and, uh, and then worked at night too uh, for about eight years cataloging and identifying hundreds and hundreds of metal parts, lacquer masters, tapes, regular reel-to-reel -reel tapes, and other various forms of recording that the RCA engineers, for I don't know what reasons, did not write anything down. Oh, my word. On these recordings. They had no indication what this was. And I, I, I found a lot of junk, too. I mean, I must have found about 100 discs of Morse code from 1943 that was coded Morse code that was for the military. What we were doing with this stuff, I don't know. But a lot of wonderful things, a lot of broadcasts that, uh, that they did reissue, some unbelievable Waller, Duke Ellington, mm. um, two CDs worth of um, Sinatra with Dorsey and uh, Ella Fitzgerald when she took over the uh, Chick Webb Band. And unless you were by a radio in 1939, 40, 41, you have never heard these recordings. They were so unbelievable. So finding these things, it was just like, wow, listen to this, you know. So um, it a was kind of... A musical archaeologist. You yeah. must have just been a kid in a candy store. It really was. I mean, um, every day was a whole new adventure. Oh. It, wa it was not just, a, you know, like punch in nine to five. Mm. So, but they merged with uh, Sony. So now it's Sony BMG. And I was the last to join in my department, so the last to come in is the first to go. You know, jobs were going to get cut. And uh, I got really crazy busy with my music life mm. and working days and nights and weekends. Oh, it, you had to have. Even you need some time off. Even workaholics need a breather. Yeah, it got too much. It got to be too much. Well, talk about keeping your band going, because that's something I really admire, because I know personally how hard it is to sustain a jazz career. People think it's this wild and crazy fun time, which it mm. is, but it's not easy to make a living. And to keep a big band going, which is what you do, playing this music, that's not easy. Mm. Yeah, um, even just trying to find a venue to play here in New York City, it took seven months of going door to door with CDs and all kinds of credentials of all the films we've been involved with and society events and blah, blah, blah. And and people just say, look, you guys are too large, you're too old-fashioned. And they say, well, we have music. And you have music, Reddies? And they point upwards to these, <laughs> to these speakers in the ceiling. Oh. And I said, that's not the same. Live music is something unique and different. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of people are cost-cutting uh, these days. Uh, we have to do sometimes gigs that we don't, you know, play the true jazz that we like to play, more of commercial music, a lot of society events where we have to play a little bit more relaxed dance music and uh, mix it up with, uh, you know, some bossa novas and things mm -hmm. like that, which, you know, the guys accept. I mean, saying, like, okay, you know, this is all being a professional musician. You know, mm -hmm. whatever they need you to do, we do. And yeah. it's a way to surround it and, and create an environment that you can play the things you like so you can present those things as well. Exactly.
you're playing now because just the fact that you are playing, mm -hmm. I say as an audience member, it's a great thing to get to hear a big band in person because you don't. It's it's rare. Yeah, it is, and getting rarer. You know, when they asked Buddy Rich many years ago, are big bands coming back? And he said, sure, on the football field every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, we know what Buddy's talking about. But um, we played this place in Manhattan on the corner of 49th and Broadway called Charlie O's Times Square Grill. And it's kind of neat being finally on Broadway. We look out the window, and there is the wonderful Brill Building, where many music publishers and songwriters got together over the years. Right down the street is where the Kentucky Club was, where Duke Ellington played when he first came to New York with his big band. Kind of diagonally across the street is the place that used to be the uh, downtown Cotton Club, the Palais Royal, where Paul Whiteman and Gershwin rehearsed the Rhapsody in Blue, and the original Roseland wasn't too far away either. So hopefully, uh, you know, some of those the musician ghosts are going to come over and see us. No, seriously. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to, to be in a nice location where, you know, we're accessible to people and there's good food and uh, it's a kind of a warm, friendly atmosphere for a change. The, the people there that run the place are very nice. It's really important to you to carry this on with younger people, and I love that. And it's not an easy thing to do, as we mentioned before, because very few stations play jazz. And we know that if people are exposed to this, that they do love it. And what are some of the answers? What are some of the ways to do it? Because I know you really reach out. You're very much for trying to develop the audience, which is important. Talk about that. Well, I know when I was a kid, we took a bunch of us into the city, which was a big event, <laughs> to see an opera. Hmm. Now, I'm not an opera devotee. I, I think opera is great, but it was a wonderful experience to show young kids that this art form existed. And I'm sure it turned on some folks to opera. I mean, you just have this unbelievable sp spectacle of seeing uh, all the scenery and live people, you know, singing and a big orchestra. And I, I think this should happen for jazz music also. I think young kids should have a day trip to come see us or, or someone else in, in a small club in, in Manhattan where they could look at a trombone, maybe even try a trombone or a piano or find out that there's other things out there. And, and you know, maybe have sort of a, a couple of folks out front you know, in front of the band, sort of more Sesame Street kind of folks, maybe a, a, a puppet, you know, something that will that will keep young kids entertained so it's not just the, the music and the musicians. It's all of a package. I think kids today are so media-oriented, and, and, and they have to see a lot of different things to, to get, you know, to keep their attention. I mean, that's the way they, they're uh, raised today. Um, but just the whole idea of um, getting these kids when they're really young, before they get their prejudices, mm. saying like, oh, this is old music. All right, maybe 98% of these kids will still hate the music, but that's fine. It's the 2% of these kids that, mm. that I want to say, wow, they, they're, they're there to carry on the tradition. They're going to take up an instrument and play it, or they're just going to be fans. They're going to buy the CDs, go out and support these artists. I think it's important... It was important for, for classical music, too. I mean, we're having a hard time. Mm. The young kids just do not know about this stuff. Mm -hmm. 
and we've got to get the word out. So one of my dreams is kind of a, a small not-for-profit club in, in New York that, that will keep this, this dream alive. Oh, how nice. And have different musicians play specifically for kids. Absolutely. Oh, how wonderful. Count me in. You got it. That's great. Vince, it's so great to have you here. I'm a big fan. Judy, I'm a big fan of yours, too, and thank you so much for all that you've been doing on the piano, on the radio, in the concert hall. You're keeping the flame alive. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Thank you. You've been listening to band leader Vince Giordano. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners, Steinway & Sons, and Sag Harbor Florist. Visit sagharborflorist.net. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel in Sag Harbor, New York. Learn more at theamericanhotel.com. Special thanks to our webmaster, Megan Lewis, and to Jamie Roach for additional production assistance.